Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and if you're listening on podcast right now, do me a favor, hit pause and scroll down to that subscribe or follow button. Or if you've already subscribed, just click on the rate or review button and say something about why you enjoyed this show. Your subscriptions, ratings, and reviews help more people to discover the show. And if you believe in listening to and thinking about great ideas from across the ideological spectrum, then hopefully you can help us expand that discussion to as many people as possible. Over the last 20 years, there's perhaps been no issue in our public discussion more emotional, more fraught, and more elusive in terms of finding long-term solutions than immigration. There have been many brief periods where it looked like the stars were aligning and political forces were coming together to support a longer-term consensus approach. Each time, those efforts have disintegrated into bickering and ultimately political backlash. But some analysts believe that we may be on the cusp of a longer-term solution. One of those experts is Nathan Kasai. He's a senior policy counsel at the Washington, D.C. think tank, Third Way, and he's just published an article laying out the argument for why now could and should be the time to finally get something real done on immigration. And he's here to walk us through it. Nathan, welcome to Great Ideas. Thank you. It's great to be here. Absolutely a pleasure to have you. And look, I, I am going to be the very first to say to all of our listeners, I know what you're thinking. This is Lucy and the football. We're going to talk about this issue and it's going to seem like, okay, now you're serious and maybe the football will get pulled away. We are going to turn to your argument for why now could and really should be the moment where Charlie Brown finally hits that football in just a few minutes. But first, let's kind of dig into where we're at, how we got here, and sort of what the numbers say, what the situation is, because it's so easy to lose the thread on a subject as complex and that's evolved so much over time, like immigration. So let's hit some of that tangled history. What has the policy landscape looked like over the last 20 years? How, how has it evolved? And what are we talking about in terms of numbers of people in this country and not having full legal citizenship or other kind of legal status here in America? Yeah, so I, I totally agree that the, the Lucy and the football analogy is sort of exactly how immigration has felt over the last two decades. We sort of perennially live in fear of the Lucy and the football moment. But, you know, I, I it's, it's a really exciting time that I think we can get something really big and really good done on immigration for the first time in really a generation. You know, as you pointed out, something big on immigration has eluded pretty much every single administration, uh, presidential administration over the last 20 years. Bush tried to get it done in the 2000s. It, that didn't happen. You know, Obama famously, the Obama administration famously was trying to get the Gang of Eight together to pass a bipartisan uh, comprehensive immigration bill and that, that passed out of the Senate, but just couldn't make it through the House. Even the Trump administration for all of its anti-immigrant rhetoric, you know, they were, Jared Kushner was shopping around his, uh, his ideas on reforming the immigration system, though it, we never saw legislative text out of it. But so every single presidential administration has really looked at immigration as something that they want to shape in their image. They, they want to be the one to, to finally get a big, bold, comprehensive plan through in the, 
in line with their ideology on immigration. And it, it, it's always seemed like the stars have never aligned, either you know, we'll get it through one house or it just, it doesn't get the momentum or it sort of dies under its own weight for how complicated the issue is. Um, but now through the budget process in the Senate and the House, I think we're, we're really excited about a, a really targeted package of immigration solutions that we think would make a really, really big difference both for the country and just for ordinary people's lives. So the last time there was a major moment on immigration in terms of new law. Was that all the way back in the Reagan administration? Yeah. So the last the last real sort of legalization we did was oh and I'm gonna I'm gonna bungle the the acronym or was the it 86 oh yeah 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 well, I, I I can't remember the acronym either but right. it's Googleable. Yes and and DC loves an acronym but it it that truly was back in the the Reagan era, and you know since then, our our country has changed, the economy has changed, the world's much more connected, much more global, and our our immigration system is really from a different time, and and does need you know we we really need to be looking at how are we handling you know our immigration system so that it so that it works both for the country our economy so that it works for american citizens and so that it works for people who want to join this country just to give a sense of scale here because you hear different estimates different numbers it's hard to keep track of all them there are what are we talking about in terms of number of undocumented immigrants in this country and they may fall into slightly different categories so so what does all that look like yeah, in, in total, the undocumented population is around 11 million people in this country. And for context, the United States is about 350 million people. So 11 million sounds really big when you talk about it sort of in isolation, but really it, it, it makes up a, a much smaller in proportion to the overall U.S. population. And there have been some important trends that are changing and in terms of what the undocumented population looks like. You know, I think stereotypically everyone thinks of Mexico when um, you think about the undocumented population. But one thing a lot of people don't realize is the proportion of, or the portion of undocumented Mexicans is, is actually, is still large, but it's actually been declining over the past 10 years as you know, pre-pandemic, as the economy in Mexico improved, as, as people actually sort of went back to Mexico um, and you know, one of the trends that we're increasingly seeing in the undocumented population is it's a lot of people who, or increasingly a lot of people who, you know, fly here on a tourist visa or on another form of visa. You know, maybe they have um, a temporary worker visa or another type of visa, and they overstay the visa. So a lot of times, the sort of what the actual undocumented population looks like or who it is isn't exactly sort of the image that you know comes first in mind for a lot of people. Is it the case that increasing numbers of immigrants who are coming through the southern border, which is probably the image that most people do bring to mind, are actually not of Central American or South American origin, but are actually making their way to that area of the world from Africa, Eastern Europe, and Asia, and they're just taking that that migrant route into our country? So generally, those who are coming through the southern border are in fact coming from Central or South America. You know, I think then getting to the United States 
coming through, if you were coming, you know, if you're seeking asylum or refuge in this country, heading towards a third country and then trying to make what is often a treacherous, you know, journey across the border, like often that's, that's a pretty inefficient or just a logical way to try to get into the country. And so generally speaking, if those who are coming from overseas on and who have asylum claims, and I think it's important to remember too, that the asylum process, you know, it, it gets conflated with the undocumented and population, but the asylum process is in fact a legal process. It is in fact, quote unquote, coming the right way according to our laws. Every single person who makes their case of asylum, you know, they have to go through the immigration court system. And it's not, it's not, it's hardly a rubber stamp. Um, the really the point of it is you have to have a significant fear for your safety or, you know, or a persecution in your home country. And you have to prove those claims in front of an immigration judge. And it's, it's not an easy task. I'm glad you brought up the question of asylum because it is one of those areas of immigration policy that saw a major change under the Trump administration. And it's easy to shorthand the Trump administration policy, Donald Trump's general approach on immigration as he didn't like it. It was bad. Get it. Okay. Point granted. But within that, there's, there's a little bit of nuance as you outlined and, and a few wrinkles. So what, how would you characterize the Trump approach that, that the previous administration's policy on immigration, because it was full of these little pieces on things like asylum and where, what country of origin you were coming from and closing the border. And then there was COVID. What did all that look like? I think truly the overarching principle of the Trump administration's immigration policy was less is more and and less being less immigration. We saw across the board, it was a consistent theme month to month, year to year, seeing that the Trump administration just consistently was doing things that made it harder to come to this country, either through the asylum system, either through the visa process. We consistently heard you know, policy goals or just White House goals to to try to make the system more restrictive. And that's not all that surprising, given that is essentially what he ran both for election the first time on and which he ran for re-election on as well. And how have those set of policies, especially around issues like asylum? I mean, we all know the wall, we think, but might as well touch on it anyway. How have those set of policies evolved under the Biden administration? So I think the Biden administration's approach has been to carefully and diligently roll back and try to try to go back to more of the norm that we saw before the, the Trump administration. Now, things are certainly complicated given that we continue to be navigating our way through a global pandemic and that, that creates challenges. But by and large, the Biden administration's approach has been to, in a controlled manner, restore some semblance of order to the border, to, you know, to, to use all branches of the federal government to make the system less chaotic at the border, to, to put, you know, it is truly useful to put more resources at the border to help process people so that their claims are vetted more quickly, so that we do a better job of vetting their claims, and so that people, you know, can safely come into the country too, so that they're not just forced to wait in Mexico while, you know, for years on end while their claims are vetted. Um, and so I think this is an area where it is 
it is incredibly helpful having the White House, you know, having President Biden's experience in the White House previously. He's not, he's hardly new to government. And it it is truly, I think the overarching goal is as we get through the pandemic and as the country hopefully opens up to the broader world again, and as the world opens up, hopefully, that we can return to a more orderly process at the border that also is in line with the long history that we have as a country of, of welcoming people into this country and, and you know, providing safety to the world. Of course, the image that people do bring to mind when they think about the difference between the Trump approach to immigration and the Biden administration approach to immigration is the saga of unaccompanied minors, the separation policy at the border. Now, that policy was undertaken pretty much on its face as a disincentive for migrants to cross the border. The thinking at the time was, if we present a dangerous, discouraging, and, and, and emotionally unpleasant image of what it's like to come to this country and the threat that you might be separated from your children, then fewer people would come. Is there any evidence about whether that policy was effective and whether on the flip side, the increase in migrants that we've seen in the course of 2021 is caused by the Biden administration's different approach on that issue? So I think really important context in this question is that migration to the southern border is is both cyclical and it's seasonal. You know, I think it is certainly affected by regional conditions, but it's also just, it's frankly just safer to come in the spring when the conditions are, you know, you're talking about coming to a region that is largely arid and it's a desert climate. It's It's often not safe to come in the summer months or in other months. And so there's, there's often a window, like, a quote unquote window of opportunity um, where it where it is safer to come. You know, with with child separation and family separation, I think one of the real questions is fundamentally is who do we want to be as a country and 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 what are our values? I think there's this view that there's this zero sum game between having a controlled border, you know, between our national security or our border security and being a welcoming country that, you know, safely and securely vets people. Those aren't, those choices aren't necessarily at odds with each other, though the Trump administration's sort of political philosophy was they certainly were. So with, with the Biden administration currently, and with the increase of, you know, people we've seen at the border in, in past months, I think some important context is, is that it is, it's seasonal, it's cyclical, you know, Central America's, you know, also had a pretty rough last year, while the world has had a pretty rough last years, in, including the United States. Central America got hit by two fairly devastating hurricanes, you know, that combined with the pandemic and, and other factors that, you know, cause people to, uh, to make the journey north. I think really important context is also, you know, generally speaking, I don't, people don't want to leave their home country. People don't want to leave their communities, their family, the, the life they've always known. So this notion that you can sort of, 
draconianly enforce your way and disincentivize people to come. These are people who are making really difficult choices already for either for their their own safety, for their lives, for their kids. And so I, I think this notion that, you know, if we if we just got super tough and or we just ramped up, you know, the cruelty factor, people are coming to make good faith asylum claims. And and in doing so, that is motivated by you know, fear for their lives or persecution and that I think that wins out over, you know, the fear or the the danger that the Trump administration presented. Any discussion of immigration would be incomplete without hitting what makes it sort of a third rail issue, which is the question of do migrants who come to this country have some kind of a pathway to permanent legal status or even citizenship? The argument against those, I assume, although maybe you're aware of other major arguments, the argument against those pathways is, hey, you're you're essentially giving amnesty. You're essentially saying it's okay to to break our laws and come here, and we're going to let you off scot free. But there are also arguments for take, creating that kind of a pathway. What are the major arguments? I think the major arguments are that you know these are law-abiding people who have who are contributing to our country who who really you know just want a shot of taking care of their families taking care and and you know actually contributing to the country and i think another thing is that the immigration system is just fundamentally broken it you know it it is i, I think you hear the the phrase sort of cutting the line or amnesty and in reality there's no position really to get in line for a lot of countries you know a lot of if uh, if you're coming from certain parts of the world there really is no line or the line is is decades long to the point where that doesn't work for us that doesn't work for other people and so i i truly think that until we as a country are ready to take a long hard look at the way our immigration system works and until we're really willing to look at it and say this is how we make it work better for both the nation and for those who want to come. It's hard to be surprised that there are going to be routes outside of the, the quote unquote legal system. So the picture you paint, and I think it does bring us up to the present moment, is that we have a situation that has been, if you, if you view the fact that we have 11 million people in this country who don't have some kind of legal status, who we don't know who they are, where they are and what they're doing. If you view that as some kind of a problem for any number of reasons, then you can't be satisfied with the status quo. And this problem isn't going away and it isn't getting better. We have been teasing this idea for the whole first half of the show that maybe it's time to get out of this untenable situation. So what is, your great idea, and I'm going to give a caveat here. I think you've said to me off the air that your great idea isn't necessarily just yours. It doesn't necessarily belong to Third Way or Nathan. It's not necessarily brand spanking new, but it's something that kind of needs to be said and jumped on. So what is it? Yeah, so this is obviously, you know, years of the, in the making and the entire immigration advocacy and policy space. And we have had 
really good ideas on the table for for decades now. And what is super exciting is that this seems like an opportunity or the right opportunity to really get this done in a way that would be huge for the country and for these immigrant communities. So what we're looking at is through the budget prod, both in the House and the Senate, creating a pathway to pathway to both legal status first and then a pathway to citizenship eventually for four groups, four groups of immigrants. You've got dreamers who there are about 780 odd thousand of them who have received what's called DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This was a program that the Obama administration created. These are, these are people who were brought here as, as children, as, as young children, undocumented, but really this is the only country they've ever known. Many of them you know, have gone to college now. They've, they've owned homes here. They've started families. And so creating, there's been you know, long bipartisan consensus that this is a very deserved immigrant group. These are people who have come out of the shadows. They've registered with the government. They've, they've been doing everything right to the best of the ability that they can given the system. And you know, there's, there's wide public and bipartisan consensus that this is a group that we should really allow to be, you know, to be bought into the American system. Additionally, we have a group called Temporary Protected Status Recipients or TPS recipients, 400,000 total. And what the TPS system does is if a country has suffered a natural disaster or serious conflict, the State Department and the government will certify that a country is, is not safe for us to send people back to. So those who were in the US when that happened or when, when the situation happened, they're allowed to remain in the United States legally while it's no longer safe to go back there. And so the largest three countries that we have populations from this are Venezuela, El Salvador, Nicaragua, but also countries like Syria, Haiti, and Yemen. And one of the real challenges we've seen on TPS over the last decade or the last two decades is, you know, conflicts and situations are becoming protracted. You look at you know, Haiti is consistently in the news where, you know, originally TPS was granted to Haitians in the U.S. because of the earthquake back in the 2010s, but consistently the the, cha the country has really faced immense challenges. And so you'll see, you know, every 18 months or year over year, the State Department recertifies that the TPS status for these countries, but that status never really allows people to transition into a green card or a, a more permanent visa, even though at some point these people have been here for you know, 10, 20 years, they've, they've bought homes in the US, they've, they've had kids, they've started businesses. And so their, their lives are really rooted in the US because they, they're here legally, but not permanently. And so it's again, a, a group that it's, it's really easy to make the case and to see how the undocumented population or the, the quote unquote, not permanent legal resident population isn't, you know, isn't just this sort of amorphous undocumented population that, that we normally think of. And then the third group that Congress is looking at are farm workers, both those who have come on seasonal temporary visas where you know, they'll come from their country of origin, they'll work a season in the agricultural sector, and then they'll, they'll go home in the off season. And these people will, you know, for decades and years will, will come through. And for some people that 
that works great. But for, for others, you know, who have worked 10, 20 years in the agricultural sector, it, it, it makes sense, you know, if they want to, if they're coming every single year and, and they want to settle in the United States permanently, that's a good thing for this country and for agriculture workers or agricultural businesses who, who truly need more workers. The, within the farm workers provisions, it would also create an earned pathway to citizenship for the large number of undocumented agricultural workers who make up about half of our total agricultural labor force. And so it's, again, it's, it's a really important group that, you know, that we create a deserved and earned pathway just to legal status for the long-term health of our economy and for our nation's food security. And finally, the last group that Congress is looking at is essential workers. So those who, you know, worked jobs like in the healthcare sector or um, in grocery stores or other jobs that were that were really, really critical in the last year and a half through the pandemic and making sure that we as a country could could weather the storm. So again, caretakers. And it, it's, you know, really about us as a country looking at those who we truly rely on and, and making sure that for our own sake and for theirs as well, that that we're, you know, we're retaining these people. So let me just read that back to you because what it sounds like you're laying out here is you're not saying, hey, let's make everyone legal, permanent status, or a citizen, all 11 million right now. What you're saying is there's sort of some low-hanging fruit where there really should be consensus. There really should be a significant degree of consensus. Most people would agree on this, not just not just most politicians, but most like actual humans would agree on the idea that these are people where there's a pretty clear cut case. And so I can see how that's appealing. Let me hit you with the devil's advocate argument for just a second in terms of what if what's the downside to not doing this right now? What are the consequences? What if we let this moment go by? Because one could argue, hey, look, people have been in this status for a long time. We've had DACA folks since President Obama took that action. We've had agricultural workers, as you say, coming here for decades in some cases and providing, I mean, look, if you like to eat food in this country, then you definitely rely on the work of of a migrant worker who's, who's come to this country. So you, you should value that definitely, but the system seems to be working and, and limping its way along. So why would it really be so bad to miss this window to take some action? You know, I think there's, there's both the argument that limping along is not good enough and it's not working for us as a country or for these, for these people and that, you know, we, we can make the system much better and we can really improve the lives of a lot of deserving people, both, you know, both immigrants and Americans, as we've pointed out. Um, I think the, and you know, it's, it's the right political moment to do it. You know, it's, it sort of feels in many ways like the train is leaving the station and this is one of the last best opportunities that we will have to do this. It's frankly rare that we, in, in our current age, that you know, we have sort of a unified vision in Washington of, of the path that we want to go. And even then it's it's not, not always guaranteed that it'll get done. So I think this is this is sort of the right moment where it feels like hopefully the stars are aligning and that 
we will be able to get all of our ducks in a row and get this across the finish line. And I, you know, it's, it's really hard when you have that opportunity to think, well, maybe we could get something else done or something even bigger done later on. I think there is such an argument right now that do the most good possible right now. And I think the reason why we need to do it right now is that, you know, sort of as we've said, the system is limping along. That doesn't mean there aren't potential landmines in the future. To the surprise of many people, DACA survived the Trump administration. DACA survived Trump trying to rescind it. TPS, you know, again, the Trump administration tried to roll back a lot of those certifications. The Trump administration ramped up enforcement workplace and workplace raids. But I think there are really acute threats coming down the pipeline. The first being the Supreme Court and DACA. Now, the Supreme Court said that the Trump administration didn't roll back DACA correctly when they tried to. And so for that reason, they it was ordered to be reinstated. And the Biden administration- it was a technicality. Exactly. The Biden administration has committed to renewing DACA applications. But the Supreme Court never said that a future president or that even Trump at the time couldn't take another bite at the apple and do it correctly. It was really just that Trump did it in a sloppy, bungled way. So there is nothing to be said that a, a you know the White House will change hands again at, at some point. That is a guarantee that a future administration won't say, hey, I don't like DACA either. We're going to get rid of it. Or, you know, I don't think that these those these people who have been here through TPS, that, that we don't really need to worry about them anymore. And so until we truly create these permanent pathways, none of these communities are going to have the security that they need to build lives and contribute fully to this country. I, I see what you're getting at there in terms of the benefits, because if you look at it and you break it down, as you've very intelligently done here in terms of the the slightly different categories of folks we're talking about, you're talking about, look, I think most people agree when it comes to DACA folks, these are young Americans, right? They're here. They were brought to this country as kids. It's it's fair to say through no fault of their own. That's fair. That is a fair way to put it. They didn't take an action. They were brought here as kids. You know, if you're a college kid here and you want to build a life, the fact that you might get kicked out to a country you've never seen, where you may not even speak the language, that has got to be pretty daunting to your long-term economic prospects. I could see how for an employer of an agricultural worker, knowing that visas are subject to the vicissitudes of politics and they can fluctuate up and down. And you've got to go to Congress to say, mother may I every year to get the number of workers you need to stay in business. Yes, having your workforce be here on some kind of a permanent status, that's a benefit. That's a benefit to those employers. I want to hit the other end of the sentence though. I had asked earlier about the benefits of acting now or the consequences of failing to act now. And you said it's very rare in our current political climate that the stars align. So what you're talking about is the fact that Democrats who have an aligned vision control the House, the Senate, and the presidency and are able to use reconciliation. Now, 
we're not going to get into the weeds on reconciliation. For people who want to do that, we had one of the top experts in America do that for us on an earlier show. Go back in your Great Ideas podcast feed and listen to the episode with Tori Gorman of the Concord Coalition. It was a fascinating discussion. She actually made this really technical topic super interesting. She also said that reconciliation absolutely has to end. Great discussion. Go listen to that one. In the meantime, Nathan, why reconciliation? Why right now? You know, the, the short answer is because you don't need two, a two-thirds majority in the Senate to get things done through reconciliation. It, it gets around the filibuster. And so that is that is the tactical reason for it. Democrats control. We, the, the Senate is split 50-50. And then with Vice President Harris's vote, you can get things done in ways that you can't otherwise. You know, with with immigration, it's, and, you know, again, without getting super technical on reconciliation, it if you're going to do things through reconciliation, it has to be primarily budget focused. It can't be policy first, which, you know, we argue immigration does fulfill that requirement. And one of the main reasons why we believe it is that Republicans, in fact, in the Bush era, included immigration provisions that are remarkably similar to what Democrats are proposing now with increase in the number of green cards. And they allowed people, or they, they proposed allowing people to adjust their status from an undocumented status into a provisional permanent residency. And that's, that's very similar to what Democrats are proposing for every single one of these immigrant groups that we've talked about before. So, you know, it, and, and the really interesting thing before about the immigration provisions that were included by Republicans is that so there's what's called the, the bird rule test, which is basically when they decide, the Senate parliamentarian decides, is this primarily budget focused or is this, is this policy sort of masquerading as, as a budget measure? And what is really interesting about the Republican measures that were included back in the Bush era is that while there was never a bird rule determination, it got past the point at which you would have levied that objection or you would have asked the parliamentarian to say, to say, hey, you know, like I don't think this is, I don't think this is budget focused first. Right. Um, it's like a Sherlock Holmes, this is the dog that didn't bark type thing. It's like if there were a problem, the parliamentarian would have said something. So you have a pretty good part of your argument is you've got a you've got a pretty good precedent here that's totally. not only kind of this technical one of like it, it seemed like this was okay 15 years ago, but also, hey, Republicans, you were saying this like politically like five minutes ago that all of this was cool with you. So can we just do this now? And there certainly were objections to it, just not for the budgetary reasons, for more political reasons. And so we truly feel like we are on good footing. And you know, I think again, it it is the right time to do this because. We're, we're both aligned in the reconciliation process. The, the timing of it is just, it's never going to be this good again. And, you know, I, I think it's easy to get lost sort of in immigration as this sort of amorphous, you know, 30,000 foot level. But at the end of the day, immigration is, is probably one of the most kitchen table issues for these communities. And this affects their futures. This affects their day-to-day lives. This affects the future of the country. This affects our economy. You know, this, this is a big issue for not just deserving immigrant communities, but for the country. And I think it, you know, we should be trying to tackle and solve really big challenges. And I think this is an example where, you know, Democrats are being 
very strategic and smart, but they're also being bold and progressive on this in a way that is really exciting. You brought up the P word. And on this show, we try not to get too much into the political back and forth. We like to let the ideas carry the weight of the discussion. But you cannot have a discussion about immigration without bringing in politics. And I want to look at this, not just from the two parties angle, but I kind of want to look at this from three perspectives. First, I want to look at this from the standpoint of within the Democratic Party, because as you said, this is an issue where currently the reason this window exists is because of that alignment of control and the ability to use the reconciliation process. But that relies on unanimity within the Democratic group of senators. And we know that the progressives and the moderates don't always agree on everything. Now, one thing about the great idea you put forward here is you noted we're not talking about a pathway to legal status or citizenship for absolutely everyone. We're not talking about all 11 million. Is there an argument and is there a problem for Democrats in going down the road that you've outlined where some within the Democratic Party are going to say, nope, you've got to get everyone covered or we're not getting on board? No, I think everyone recognizes that this is the moment to get as large and as much, but as but also look at what is possible. And you know, I think they have correctly targeted and calculated where that is, given that shortly after it was a, it, it became public that yes, Democrats are going to go for this in immigra immigration and the reconciliation process. Senator Joe Manchin tweeted out that he supports this and that that he will be voting in favor of this. And so I think that shows like we are really where we should be on this, that we have correctly looked at where there is consensus and where we think this is possible. Now, there's also the other side of that democratic coin, which is, look, there's a longstanding argument. I mean, we all know, we all know the politics of this. It comes down to sort of the South Park theory, which is always caricatured as you know, someone standing up and saying the immigrants took our jobs. I mean, it, it always does come down to that. Ultimately, why should Democrats not be worried about the politics of this? I mean, after all, 2022 is going to be, by all accounts, a pretty rough year for them. They're going to be defending an awful lot of Senate and House seats in awfully difficult political territory for them. Why should they go down this road and take on this political water? The answer to this is that I think they should be worried about the politics of this, but the politics of this are actually quite good for us. That, you know, you look at DACA consistently polls, DACA and Dream was consistently polls somewhere in the upper 70s. TPS, you know, roughly, I think two thirds of Americans agree that there should be a permanent path to citizenship. In terms of farm workers, the legislation that the, the budget provisions are based off of for farm workers, both for the guest workers and the undocumented agricultural workers. That passed with, I think, 30 or something like 30 Republican votes in the last Congress. So in the Trump administration, you know, in a Trump administration Congress, the House of Representatives passed that with a truly bipartisan basis. You know, sometimes we love to say, oh, well, there were one or two, you know, there were one or two bipartisan votes on it. But this truly was. 30 Republicans voting for a, you know, a pathway to citizenship 
for undocumented agricultural workers in the Trump administration. And I think, you know, one of the reasons for that is, you know, it's it's easy to try to sort of use this as a wedge issue, but truly, I think a lot of people recognize, a lot of businesses, business owners recognize that we are really, really reliant on, on immigrant labor in this country. We always have been. Our country was built by that. And, you know, as we increasingly talk about labor shortage in this country, you know, every single time you know, policymakers have taken the more draconian or you know, the, the stricter approach on immigration, you know, we have seen it doesn't play out the way that, you know, they would hope it would. Oftentimes, you're, that results in unfulfilled labor needs. And so there is sort of this vision that you know, we're competing against each other when really that's just not how it plays out. And actually, that's a perfect segue to a lightning round question to you, which is, I mean, if, if really the hot button aspect of this is, do immigrants take jobs from citizens of the United States of America, current citizens of the United States of America? What's the evidence on that say? The evidence is effectively that it doesn't and that, you know, that there oftentimes are different labor sectors that people are looking for jobs in, that oftentimes American citizens don't want to work at many of these jobs. And that, you know, we're seeing, especially right now, it seems to be an employee's market and that there, there is a wealth of opportunity in this country that we really should be looking at. Well, I think it's a, it's a great summation of an incredibly tangled, long, difficult pathway and argument that we've been going through as a country for 20 years and longer. I mean, as, as you say, really since the last major reform during the Reagan administration, Nathan Kasai of Third Way, an outstanding think tank in Washington, D.C., presenting to us, maybe, maybe this is the moment, this is when the stars actually align to finally get something done, something meaningful for this country on immigration. Nathan, thanks so much for being on Great Ideas. Thank you for having me.